Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perowit, executive producer of the Broken Brain docuseries. This podcast is dedicated to continuing the conversations that Dr. Hyman and I started during the Broken Brain series. Each week, we'll invite a new guest who we think can help you improve your brain health, feel better, and live your best life. I'm very excited to announce that today's guest is a fellow colleague of mine and someone I truly look up to, Dr. Elizabeth Bohm. Dr. Bohm is a physician and a nutritionist who practices functional medicine at the Ultra Wellness Center in Lenox, Massachusetts, where she's also the medical director. Through her practice and lecturing, she's helped thousands of people achieve their goals of optimal health and wellness. She witnesses the power of nutrition every day in her practice and is committed to not only helping patients, but training other physicians to utilize nutrition and healing. She's part of the faculty of the Institute of Functional Medicine and has been featured on the Dr. Oz Show and in a variety of publications in the media, including the Huffington Post, Chalkboard Magazine, and Experience Life. Her DVD, which is one of my favorite resources when it comes to breast cancer, is called Breast Wellness, Tools to Prevent and Heal from Breast Cancer. And it explores the functional medicine approach to keeping your breast and whole body well. And you can learn all about that and more at Dr. Bohm's website, drbohm.com. Dr. Bohm, thank you for joining us here on the Broken Brain Podcast. Thank you, Drew, so much for having me. It's great to be with you today. And thank you for all your contributions to the series and the docuseries, all the insights that you brought from not only a physician's perspective, but also a nutritionist, but also a patient. You've been a patient before, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later on, with such a unique combination that I think people watched your interview Not I think, I know, because this is the feedback that we got. And they just felt you were so relatable because you see these from so many different perspectives. So I just wanted to give that acknowledgement to you because um, we heard from a lot of people about how great you are at breaking things down, not just from the doctor's perspective, not just from the nutrition perspective, but also from the patient's perspective too. Oh, thank you for saying that. You know, I mean, I think as many doctors... Uh, have experienced, many times after you become a patient yourself, it really shifts the way that you practice medicine. And I think being a patient, um, unfortunately being a patient, but being a patient in, in a good way has made me a much better physician because it helps me think about things differently and um, approach things differently. And not only do we work together at the Ultra Wellness Center, but I know firsthand this impact because my mom who was diagnosed with breast cancer a couple years ago, when she first came to me and shared, uh, I said, okay, this is the diagnosis. Let's put together the team. And one of the first people, of course, that I thought of is you because of your own journey with breast cancer and uh, where you come from and your background in nutrition. And so I sent my mom to the Ultra Wellness Center and she saw you and uh, she raved about her appointment and just feeling very heard. For, for folks that are still new to this podcast and new to this series and still beginning the understanding of it, when I sent my mom to the Ultra Wellness Center and she sits down with you and works with you as, a, as her doctor, how is that different? How is the functional medicine approach different than, let's say, if she would have been sent to another physician? Yeah, you know, um, Drew, it was, it was really wonderful to get to work with your mom and to still work with her. She's, she's phenomenal, really phenomenal and um, has really been able to take our recommendations and and go with it and has made huge changes 
um, in her life. And it's, it's really been a pleasure to work with her. Mm. Um, you know, it's, I really was, it was so thrilled to find functional medicine after I went through my conventional medicine training, because I knew I wanted to do things differently. And functional medicine really gave me the map, the tools to be able to do that. And, and I, I really appreciated that. And I said, okay, this is how I want to practice. And it's different in so many ways. It's different in, in how we, we think about each patient. You know, we, we ask that question, why? We're not just looking to come up with the diagnosis and then use a specific protocol that matches with the diagnosis. It's really patient-centered. So if you took 10 people who had breast cancer, you may have 10 different reasons or even more for why they got breast cancer. And you may have 10 different or even more treatment modalities to use depending on on why they developed that cancer, for example. And it's important for us to really ask that question why and deal with the individual patient and look at how all the different systems in the body are interrelated and look to see what got out of balance in that individual person's physiology and health and body. Because when you figure that out as much as we can, you know, when you when you figure out for that person what is out of balance and work with them to help regain balance in that area, you can be much more successful at getting to their optimal well-being and their optimal health. And and I think that's what's what's the biggest difference between functional medicine approach and a conventional approach is it is it really is a patient-centered approach, not a disease-centered approach. And um, it's it's I love working within functional medicine because it's it, it's always new, it's always different because you're because each person that comes to see you is an individual and has their own individual story and and that's what's really what's really rewarding about working within this field. Yeah, you know, you mentioned something so crucial to the concept of the broken brain series and also functional medicine, which is that in the conventional model, we often hear that, oh, we're looking for the cure. We're looking for the cure for cancer. We're looking for the cure for Alzheimer's and we're looking for the cure for this. And maybe, who knows, maybe one day we will have these cures. But, in the, but right now, when we look at it from the functional medicine lens, these diseases are not caused by one thing. And so there's not one answer. I know in the case of my mom and sending her up to the ultra wellness center and working with you, there was a whole host of things that were coming back as indicators and factors that created the underlining root causes that led to her uh, uh, cancer that was there and played a role. Um, I know that nutrition was a component. I know there was some heavy metal issues that were there from years of uh, mercury amalgam fillings and having them taken out um, incorrectly uh, there were some gut issues that were focused. So really the concept that you're driving home here that I don't know if everybody appreciates always. So it's just good to give it a little bit more attention is that, you know, you can have a hundred people that all have the same disease, but each one of them might have a slightly different root factor that's going on for them individually or root factors that need to be addressed on a personal level. Absolutely. And, you know, I know when, as when I had was diagnosed with cancer and as, as a patient, I wanted to find the reason, you know, we all do. And it can be really frustrating in medicine when, when there is not the reason, you know, and you go, come on, don't you know the answer? What's the reason? And, and, um, and, and, and it's, I think that's a really important concept to understand is that there's usually often multiple different things that come together 
and influence somebody's risk. And, and yes, when you're talking about cancer, it's, there's genetic predisposition and then there may be toxin exposure way earlier in life. And then, um, and then imbalances in the gut microbiome and, and your own individual stress that you're going through. And all of those things have an interplay and influence whether the terrain in your body is set up to allow for the growth of cancer or not. And we're using cancer as an example here. But, but that's why it's important to look at it from all those angles because that's when you can really have an impact on, on rebalancing the health and the body. I think the other unique thing about that, and uh, I did get my mom's permission to chat about her a little bit before this interview, so she approved <laughs> and she says hi. Um, Great. The other really unique thing about it uh, is that you know my mom went in because of this diagnosis, and you were part of a, an incredible team that helped her and worked with her. And for everybody who's listening, my mom does, is doing amazing. She's uh, cancer-free. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later on when we talk about Liz's story, but she went in focused on one area, and she came out with so many areas improving. And in this podcast, we often talk about brain health. And one of the things my mom felt was a level of mental clarity that she had never experienced before. And that's not really why she went to the Ultra Wellness Center and went to see you as a patient. So I'd love to talk a little bit about this idea that, uh, you know, Dr. Hyman often says that there's not one diet that's right for cancer, but then is bad for your brain. There's not one diet that's right for heart but then it's bad for some other part of your body. Some of these underlining things that are addressed have all sorts of implications um, in our life. So one of the areas that you uh, gave my mom a protocol, which is a pretty big deal for her, you know, we grew up in an Indian family and there's not really a history of a lot of movement. There's not exercise and there's not movement. And so one of the things that you did is that you recommended that she go to the gym a couple days a week, two to three times a week, and that played a huge improvement in her mental clarity along with everything else that's, um, that's there. So can you talk a little bit more about, uh, we know about food, we know about supplements sometimes, we know about nutrition, but why did you bring in this uh, component of exercise um, in my mom's routine, but also so many other patients that you work with? Yeah, you know, it, it, that was just a really good point that you brought up about um, how when you when you when you improve one area of your body and one system imbalance, that improves all other issues that you're dealing with. So, you know, we always talk about, or we mentioned earlier, if you took ten people with breast cancer, there may be ten different reasons or a hundred different reasons, right? But then, if you work on one of those reasons, so we could use insulin resistance, for example, right? When your body becomes resistant to the insulin, which is the hormone that helps keep your blood sugar balanced. So insulin gets secreted when you eat a, eat a meal, your body produces insulin. And that insulin tells your cells, okay, let's take the food and get it into the muscles so it can be used for energy. So what happens for many people is they, over time, become resistant to that insulin. They develop insulin resistance. And when that happens, that can result in many, 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 many issues in the body. Okay, that can cause a lot of inflammation. It can cause us to gain weight around the belly. It can make us feel more tired, but it increases risk of cancer, definitely. It increases risk of Alzheimer's disease and dementia. It increases 
risk of heart disease and stroke and diabetes. So when there's this imbalance in the body, and we're using insulin resistance here as an example, it can cause multiple different diseases. And the disease it causes is partly based on your genetics and other things that are going on and other imbalances. But so one imbalance, then when you work on that, for example, improving insulin sensitivity, it can improve uh, and decrease risk of cancer, but it also it decreases risk of heart disease and it decreases inflammation in the body and it makes you feel better and it gives you better clarity in the brain and, and gives you more energy, right? So, so one of the things that is so critical for improving insulin resistance is exercise and movement. My mother always wants me to call it movement because she, she says that when I say exercise, then it turns off a whole bunch of people. So we should just say moving more, right? And getting, having more movement and activity in your day. And that when you, when you move more, when you have more activity, when you get to the gym, when you exercise, that process, that improves how well the body listens to insulin, it improves insulin sensitivity. It decreases that process of insulin resistance, right? So exercise is one of the best things we can do for so many aspects of our health, but it also improves insulin sensitivity. And the other thing we know about movement and exercise is it increases something called BDNF. BDNF is called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. BDNF has been found to be, when there's more BDNF, that you have a decreased risk of cognitive decline as you get older. When there's more BDNF, you have a decreased risk of depression. So BDNF is, is it protects brain cells. It really helps support the growth of new neurons in the brain. So it's this wonderful substance you want more of. And one of the reasons that exercise is so great for our brain health is that it improves this BDNF. That's incredible. And I think that's so, we're sort of seeing this massive shift, you know, in the rise of the exercise movement, which I would say, you know, really became huge in North America in like the 70s and the 80s. There was so much emphasis on the physical look of the body and and losing weight. So we almost went so far in that direction, we ignored all these other reasons why movement, which I love that your mom uh, says to call it that, we ended up not focusing on all these other amazing reasons why people uh, would benefit from from movement. Um, and I love that. Absolutely. I, I think we were both at the functional mess, annual functional medicine conference, and there was somebody there that was saying that uh, uh, Leg workouts are also very important because your quads and your leg muscles are some of the are the biggest muscles inside of your body. And Absolutely. when you um, move those and you do things like squats or you lift weights with your legs, you end up generating. Uh, there's like a, a correlation with brain size. Is is that something that you're familiar with? Have you heard any of this research on this topic? Um, not so much with brain size, but, but I can imagine why, because again, the, you know, you were mentioning that they're the, the legs are the, uh, you know, we have a lot of muscle in our legs. And so when you do more strength training and you improve the, uh, the, the strength of those muscles, then you, you result, it results in a real good decrease in insulin resistance, right? It makes that insulin work better. They say that for about the, the day after you exercise, so for about 24 hours after you exercise, 
the body's ability to listen to insulin improves and it lasts for about a day. And they know that strength training is really critical for that as well. That, that, that when you do strength training, in addition to, I mean, we, aerobic exercise is good, walking, running, um, uh, swimming, biking, all great too, but that strength training and improving lean muscle mass results in even even a better improvement or just as, you know, really great improvement in insulin sensitivity. Yeah, that's fantastic. And so that then results in lower inflammation and lower inflammation results in less inflammation in the brain and it results in more of this BDNF. And that really just improves memory, cognition, decreases risk of dementia. And that research in terms of the connection with exercise and and m- memory and dementia, decreasing risk of dementia has been really well proven. It's not something that just some people think is true. You know, everybody, everybody really accepts the fact that if you do exercise, it decreases your risk of dementia and it improves your memory and it improves your mood and improves all these other aspects of your life. And so what I always work with people on is trying to figure out for them what they like to do, right? So, you know, it's, it doesn't just work to say, okay, you should exercise and I'll see you next time. Right. So you have to really work with the individual person and figure out what they like to do. You know, what do do they want to go to a gym? Would they find that motivating? Or maybe they don't want to step foot in a gym and they'd rather go to a dance class or just go for a walk outside in nature or a hike. Um, or they love to swim, you know, be in water, um, really working with that person and figuring out for them what, what they love to do and what they will be motivated to get up and do and, and really work with them to, to be very specific about their goals here and say, okay, what do you want to do for, for movement and exercise? And let's figure out what time of day are you going to do it and write it down, write, write down a little note for yourself. Okay. I'm, I'm going to go in the morning, uh, four days a week or five days a week, I'm going to go outside and go for a, a 30 minute walk. Right. And, and that's going to be your plan and make it very specific, a specific time of day, a specific activity. And if you even can get somebody to go with you even better, we know that people who exercise with other people are more likely to actually go and complete the activity. So, so make it as specific as possible. Have some time frames in there, and and grab somebody to go with you, and and you'll you'll notice you'll just you'll get in more exercise into your day. Oh, that's like all great advice for for you, Doctor Baum. How does it show up in your life? People are always fascinated by the experts that we have on this podcast, and are always looking at you know where what do they do? So for you, for movement as a weekly part of your routine, you have a busy job, you have a family. How, what does it look like for you? And, and do you ever struggle with finding time for movement in your own life? Um, you know, I, I have kind of gotten into the routine of doing it first thing in the morning and that's really helped me be consistent. So, um, the, you know, I wake up, uh, sometimes kind of early. So often I'll wake up at around five and I get my exercise in. And for me, that's, that's the way that I make sure I do it. And when it's, nice out like this time of year I can get outside and I'll do some intervals I still like to run a lot I'll do um, a couple days a week I'll I'll do some longer jogs or um, or a couple days a week I'll do some intervals where I'll sprint for 30 seconds and then walk for a minute and a half um, I've also really uh, been doing some resistance exercise with uh, the TB12 program I've been having really a lot of fun with that. Um, which is, uh, Tom Brady's methodology, right? 
Mm-hmm. It's been it's been great for me um, uh, to to get some strength training in, but do it in a safe way. So um, I've been doing that a couple of days a week, and then I also love to dance. So I'll do Zumba or other other dance whenever I can. Um, many times, you know, I'll be doing it in my basement because it'll be in the middle of the winter and it'll be dark out. And so it's not like I don't think that's ideal. I think it's better if you can to get outside, get outside when it's light out, and get some of the the, um, the sunshine, because even in the winter, that I think helps a lot with sleep. But for me, and just the way my days work, a lot of times it's, it, I'm doing it first thing in the morning. That's awesome. I think people sometimes hear things like sprints and uh, some resistance training, and immediately they just put themselves in a category of, oh, that's not for, for me. Uh, when you're talking with your patients and sitting down with them, and helping them explore some of these new options. Of course, you meet them with where they are, but um, is there any other additional resources or ways that we can get over this idea? I guess the question is really more like, for those folks that think they have such a mental block because they think of themselves as unfit, they don't know what to do, they're intimidated, what is sort of the, how can they work on getting rid of that belief system and, and just start small? You know, that it's such a great point. And, and I always, I mean, that's getting out and walking for 20, 30 minutes a day. There's nothing better than that. And if you haven't been doing a lot of activity or exercise, just start there. Say, okay, I'm going to go for a walk. And if you can't get outside because of bad weather, um, you know, you can, there's, you can walk in place, you know, there's some great walking uh, programs that you can just walk in place in in your living room. So walking is probably one of the best things we can do, or or biking and just just movement like that. It it does not have to be intense. I love to exercise intensely, and there are some benefits you can get when you do uh, interval training or intense exercise. But we do know, we definitely know that moderate exercise and getting out for a walk is great for you too and has wonderful impacts on your health. And, and, you know, that kind of brings me back to my mom, you know, she, she never was interested in getting, going to the gym or lifting weights or doing intervals. Right. So, you know, we worked, we worked together and just said, okay, let's just get walking. And she loves to walk. Um, and, and she goes to yoga a few days a week and it's perfect for her. So it's really important to find what you find, you know, what you feel is, uh, is fun. It's really, what do you find fun? Yeah. I want to take a little segue before we come back to some other things that can, uh, other tips we have for brain health. You mentioned your mom and working with your mom and uh, it sounds like your mom is very receptive to you. My mom is also very receptive to me. Uh, when I first headed down this pathway, maybe thought I was a little crazy when I first got into the world <laughs> of functional medicine. Um, there's a financial author named Dave Ramsey. He's very popular, especially in the South. He has a radio show. And sometimes people call him in and they say, you know, my parents won't listen to this advice. And he says, you know, sometimes parents have something called powdered butt syndrome. If they've wiped your butt as a kid and changed your diaper, they don't want to listen to you and take advice from you because they think, what could I possibly learn from you? So for those folks who are out there who are hearing how your my mom is listening to me and taking some advice and your mom is listening to you, if they're trying to help their parents begin to make some of these changes for their own health because they care, do you have any feedback or thoughts for them? <laughs> That's such a good point. You know, I think I think what's important to help people change and make changes in their life 
is the first thing we have to do is just give them the information, explain to them why they want to be more active. For example, right? We, we know that, um, if that you can decrease your risk of getting dementia or Alzheimer's disease by increasing your physical activity. And some people have estimated even decrease your risk by 50% by really getting that physical activity and exercise in. They estimate that about 13% of people with Alzheimer's disease that may have it because they're sedentary and they're not moving. So we know that that's a huge risk for Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And so it's important that people just n- understand how, import- how important anything is to get them to want to even change in the first place. So they really need the information. They need the knowledge, right? They need to understand those facts and say, okay, may- maybe this is something I shouldn't incorporate. This is really important. And, and so often, I think it's probably because of physicians' training um, and and when 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 I was trained in conventional medicine, the focus is so much on acute care medicine, and it's the focus is so much on pharmacology and what medication to choose for what disease. And that's really where you spend a lot of time in the in the process of medical school and residency. And so a lot of times physicians forget or or don't remember how important lifestyle is to every problem we're dealing with, right? So, so sometimes they'll be, they won't even focus on exercise, for example, because it's just, it's not at the forefront of their head, even though if they really thought about it, they'd be like, well, of course, exercise is important, but they're really focused on, let's come up with the diagnosis and let's find a medication. And their, their, their thought process is very, very different sometimes. So many times patients don't get the information. They don't get the information of how important exercise is in terms of brain health or overall health. And I think that's a huge reason that people don't follow through or make changes in their life is because they don't even recognize how much of a difference it can make. Mm, it's so true. Let's run through a few other areas because, uh, Dr. Brown, you're, you're super knowledgeable about these topics. I want to kind of run through a couple other areas and get your thoughts on it and how these uh, areas might relate to brain health. So let's talk about uh, supplements and diet. Uh, what we know running through a few different categories of how these uh, different tools can uh, beneficially improve our brain health. So let's start off with uh, probiotics. Yeah, so it's interesting. You know, people don't always think, oh, that the di- you know, probiotics, which are those good bugs that sometimes we take as, as supplements or that can be found in food, like fermented food, like uh, uh, kimchi or uh, sauerkraut or yogurt, right? That, that the probiotics, those good bacteria, would have any influence on our brain, right? We're just thinking, oh, probiotics and that might help my digestion. But we're learning more and more about how the microbes, those good bacteria in our digestive system, influence other aspects of our health. And we know that these probiotics have an influence on our brain health, and they can have an influence on the level of inflammation in our body. So, you know, many times that's an area I'll be assessing with a patient. I'll be saying, okay, what's going on with your digestive system? Could this person have some signs that they're not, they don't have enough good bacteria in their body, right? They say that we're, we have like two to three pounds of good bacteria lining our intestines, our skin, our nasal passageways. 
you know, that bacteria is so critical for our overall health and well-being. And so if you, when talking with a patient, you go, okay, maybe this person may be low in this good bacteria or may have this imbalance in their, in their gut microbiome, then that's an area that I will focus on because I know it might improve their digestive health, but it may improve other aspects of their health, like, like brain health. So uh, we, we, might pay, we might decide to add a probiotic, like as a supplement. We may really focus on getting more fiber in their diet. Um, the fiber uh, can feed these good, healthy bacteria. We'll focus on you know making sure the patient doesn't just reach for antibiotics unless absolutely necessary. These things are important for maintaining a good level of good bacteria in the body or improving or maintaining a good microbiome and decreasing risk of inflammation in the body, which actually influences brain health. Mm. And during the Broken Brain docuseries, uh, some folks had heard the, uh, the word butyrate. What, what is butyrate and what's the relationship with, with, with gut health and then ultimately brain health? Yeah. Butyrate is a substance that it's actually found in our food and it can be produced in our body. So in our food, it's in butter often um, and um, in ghee and, and also our, some of our bacteria in our digestive system can produce this substance called butyrate. And there's been some good research showing that butyrate is really important for healing the digestive system and the, and the, the uh, barrier in the digestive system, but it also can improve that BDNF. Remember, we were talking about the brain-derived neurotrophic factor. It can improve your BDNF level, and we know more BDNF is good because more BDNF is really helpful for repairing brain and, and healing brain. Incredible. And what about DHA? Again, taking out some of the common questions that we got, things and concepts that people still needed a further breakdown on, what is DHA and what role does it play when it comes to brain health? DHA is one of those uh, uh, essential fatty acids. So um, essential fatty acids are uh, the, the fats that you need to get in your diet that are essential for good health in, and um, lowering inflammation. So the omega-3 fats are some of these essential fatty acids. And there's a few types of omega-3 fats, but there's DHA and EPA. And we know that these um, omega-3 fats are great for brain health. They help, they help the brain heal. They help lower inflammation in the body. And um, you want to get more of these in your diet. And they're largely found in fatty fish. So, you know, uh, wild-caught salmon, uh, sardines. I love sardines. Um, that's, and that's a great source of these omega-3 fats and DHA and EPA. Some people also choose to take some fish oil supplements. And, you know, that can be helpful for many people who, who aren't getting enough from their diet or just need more help lowering inflammation in their body. And so I'll tell people, look for, you know, about 1,000 to 2,000 uh, milligrams of fish oil a day and get a good, you know, good, get it from a good company. That's great. Now, one of the things you did for my mom and you've done for a lot of other patients is you would put them on a slightly lower carb diet. Now, now what is that? What's the relationship with a lower carb diet and getting their, you know, reducing their sugar intake and, and what role does that play when it comes to brain health? 
Yeah. So remember we were talking earlier about insulin resistance. And one thing we know we don't want is we don't want insulin resistance. We want our insulin to work well. We want it to be really sensitive. And we were talking about how good exercise is because it improves insulin sensitivity. Well, the other thing that really impacts insulin and insulin sensitivity is our diet. And for example, if we had a diet that was high in refined carbs, so I always give the example of, you know, pancakes and syrup and a glass of orange juice, right? That meal is very high in refined carbohydrates. It gets digested really quickly and absorbed really quickly into the bloodstream. And as a result, your blood sugar goes up pretty quickly after you eat that meal. The body then has to say, oh, no, I got to handle all this food. And it produces a lot of insulin to do that. And that we don't want high levels of insulin and we don't want insulin resistance. We know that because high levels of insulin and insulin resistance cause inflammation in the body and it causes us to gain weight around the midsection. And we've found that though that high blood sugar that occurs after a meal like I just described and that high insulin can can cause damage in the brain. It can cause inflammation in the brain. It can cause the formation of these ages, advanced glycosylated end products, which um, can cause damage in the brain as well, increasing our risk of dementia. And so we know we don't want that. So what we've recognized is if we cut back on carbohydrates, we can improve insulin sensitivity and we can lower these ages those advanced glycosylated end products, and we can lower insulin and we can lower blood sugar, all the things that we want to do. And so what, what, one thing that you, you know, great place to start if you're like, okay, I know I need to lower carbs. What does that mean? The one thing that you you should start with first and foremost to say, okay, I'm going to cut out anything with added sugar. So think about, and you know, sugar is really sneaky. It can, it can sneak into your diet where you're not even realizing it, right? You grab that coffee in the morning, you know, whether it's a, a a mocha or a frappuccino, and all of a sudden you're getting tons of added sugar, right? So pay attention to ways that it can sneak in with, with, uh, coffees or teas with, with sugar added to it. Um, but lots of food products have a lot of added sugar as well. So first thing you want to focus on is, okay, I'm going to cut out a lot of added sugar or, or most of the added sugar in my diet. Let's just take away added sugar because that is a refined and processed carb, which will lead to all of the the mess we just spoke about. And then the next thing I always tell people is pay attention to uh, removing and or really, really cutting back on uh, anything with flour in it. So if, if the food, if they had to take a grain and make it into a flour and then put it in the food, then that's not good for us. Uh, well, maybe you can have it every once in a while, but in general, it's not that great for us because it's absorbed, it's digested quickly and it's absorbed quickly and it's going to cause those spikes in blood sugar and insulin. So now this includes wheat flour, but it also includes the gluten-free flours. And, you know, you have to pay attention to that because so many people are going gluten-free, but then substituting a bunch of gluten-free products like gluten-free bread, gluten-free crackers, gluten-free cookies. And that's not, that's not helpful. That's, that's going against what we want it to do. Yeah. Often many of them have added sugar to take, make them taste good. Absolutely. They're, and they're really refined and processed. So they're going to just spike that blood sugar and spike that insulin. So the first two places you can say, okay, I've got to, I've got to 
cut back on my carbohydrate intake a little bit is say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to cut out things with added sugar and I'm going to cut way down on foods with, with flours in them, like refined grains. So again, breads and pastas and crackers and cookies and, um, you know, and that's a great way to, great way to start. Those are all great tips. So we've talked about food. We've talked about exercise. We've been really making sure to put a lot of attention on sleep. You know, recently I had one of my dear friends uh, that I was in college with. Uh, we were on a on a on a on a boys trip. There was a bunch of guys that went on a road trip together and hanging out. And so we were in some cabins. There's two beds in there, and I started noticing uh, he was struggling to sort of catch his breath at night. And I thought, man, you know, he might have some sleep apnea issues, and so there's some other challenges. And he always complains about his sleep. And since college, which was many years ago, 15 plus years ago, uh, he's, his, his health has been challenging and he's struggled a lot with it. Can we talk a little bit about sleep and how important that is and the impact that it plays with, with brain health that we're finally just kind of catching up to? Yeah, sleep's critical. I think it's my, my favorite thing to focus on with people because so many of us are not getting enough sleep, right? We're not giving enough time to rest and get adequate sleep and turn off our devices and, and really allow our body to rest and sleep. And so, we, and most adults need between seven and nine hours a night. And so we really need to make that time. And so often people try to cut, cut corners there. And like you mentioned, the adequacy of the sleep's really critical to assess. So not only are you getting, you know, giving yourself enough hours to sleep, but how is the quality of your sleep? And sleep apnea is a huge problem. It's really something that we see a lot of and something you want to you wanna be screened for. And if you have any signs of it, you want to talk to your doctor about getting uh, tested. So signs of sleep apnea may be that, you know, for the person that's not, that, you know, for, the, for your partner, somebody sleeping with you or in the same room as you, they may notice that you're, um, you're snoring, but then every once in a while you stop snoring. And actually you might not even, it's, you're stopping breathing at times. And that may happen for 15 seconds. It may happen for 60 seconds. And then all of a sudden you start catching your breath and take a nice deep breath in again and start snoring again. And that, and that, those episodes where there's actually a break and there's a time when the body is not getting oxygen, it, those are called apnea, apneic episodes or apnea. And if, of course, that's not good for us because there's a time where your brain's not getting oxygen and it, it results in a lot of issues with memory and mood and um, brain function. Weight and, gain. Of course. But exactly. That's like, you know, it, it is, it's huge to cause an increased inflammation in the body. And it's been shown to cause that insulin resistance we've been talking so much about that we don't want. It causes us to gain weight around our belly and makes it very hard to lose weight. Um, you know, when I have a patient who has sleep apnea and they, if they don't treat it and I give them all sorts of good stuff to do, get you know, they're, they're exercising, they're making the right food choices. Many times they don't lose the weight, you know, and, and they can be doing everything right. And the weight doesn't come off. And it's because when there's apnea going on, the body's metabolism totally shifts and weight loss doesn't happen. 
Um, and so, so that's really a, an important sign to pay attention to. If your blood pressure starts to go up or you can't control your blood pressure, you can't remember your dreams, um, you're feeling tired during the day, you might fall asleep watching TV, or if you're just sitting there, you feel like you're falling asleep when you're driving, um, and you can't lose weight, all of these are signs to say, I should get a sleep study and find out if I have sleep apnea. And, and many times patients will say to me, yeah, but then I have to wear the mask and I don't want to wear the mask. And so people don't even get tested because they don't want to wear the mask and they don't realize how, how dangerous this is. Cause you know, it also increases risk of sudden death and heart disease. I mean, it's, it's not something you want to play around with. And I think it's important for people to recognize that you don't always have to wear the mask. There's other treatments, sometimes surgeries or different dental devices. And, and when people, even people who have to wear, wear the, the CPAP machine or the mask at night, most of the time, even though they resist it for a while, they end up coming back to me and telling me is the best thing they ever did. And they haven't felt so good in, in so long. So it, it really is, it's tremendous in terms of how much it can improve your health and improve your brain health. And they've made the mask technology has improved over the last few years. It gets smaller and smaller. And so it looks a little Absolutely. less like the, you know, uh, the evil character in the Batman movie. And now it's getting a little bit more manageable, but I agree. Any Absolutely. And for people who tried a mask and it didn't work for them, there are, like you said, there's, there's, there's improvements in the technology. There's multiple different types of masks out there. So you may just have to try something different. So you want to find a good sleep specialist in your area and, and really explore all that. And, and don't just say, okay, I tried it once. It didn't work. Dr. Bohm, you talked about inflammation. And of course, during the docuseries, we went deep and we had a bunch of different experts talking about the mechanisms, but it's always worth revisiting because I think when people and our listeners hear it explained in a different way, it resonates, it reaffirms it. So, so much of our Broken Brain docuseries and in this podcast, uh, listeners are hearing about the term inflammation. And I think a lot of them feel like they understand the concept but some people feel like they don't. So how does inflammation tie into disease and why is it important to lower it, especially the chronic inflammation that we're all dealing with? Yeah, that's so important to distinguish because inflammation is occurs all the time in our bodies and it's in, it's important in the acute setting. You know, you, um, you cut your finger, your body needs to produce a bunch of things that increase inflammation and that helps heal the body. But the problem occurs when there's this chronic inflammation and there's chronic levels of elevated cytokines and inflammatory markers in the body that are, are just continuing and they just keep going because that, the, that results in disease. It results in all sorts of different diseases, including diseases of the brain and um, dementia and uh, neurodegenerative diseases. One thing we had we were talking about before was those ages, those advanced glycosylated end products that occur when your blood sugar is too high and it binds to these proteins and that those ages increase inflammation in the brain and that they've been associated with uh, dementia, Alzheimer's disease and multiple different neurological diseases. So inflammation is something to really pay attention to. And we always, I mean, I test everybody to see, okay, are there signs of inflammation in their body? And you, you know, that's, I think a, a great thing you can ask your, your doctor to do. You can say, okay, I want to get some 
markers of inflammation checked. And they can check a C-reactive protein. It's CRP. And, and that can give you an indication of, is there chronic inflammation going on? It's not the perfect test. And there's, no, there's never a perfect test out there. There's, but, it, but it's one, one piece of the puzzle to say, okay, do I have elevated levels of inflammation? Now, if, if somebody listening to this does go to their doctor, you know, one of the challenges that people have been writing in and sharing is that they can ask for a test. Sometimes they get pushed back, which is the doctor saying, uh, you know, it could be a little bit of, you know, lack of knowledge, but maybe sometimes a little ego in some situations of why do you want this test? What are you going to do with it? But then even if they do get the test, sometimes the doctors don't know what to 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 do with it because the reference ranges in functional medicine for what's considered healthy are not always the same in conventional medicine. So let's say somebody does want to get, you know, the CRP, C-reactive protein test. Um, do you feel like their doctor would know how to appropriately interpret it and give them recommendations? You know, um, it's a little bit of both here. So the yes and no, and of course it depends on the physician, but the C-reactive protein uh, is it test that you can have done at most labs. So it's easy to get done. Ideally, you want it to be less than one. Sometimes the issue comes in when the, the value is high, then the physician says, well, I don't really know why it's high. So, but it's important if, if your C-reactive protein is high, let's say it's, you know, if it's a little high, like 1.2 may not be a big deal, but if it starts to go up two, three, for some people, it even goes up to nine, 10, right? Then you have to pay attention and say, why is that high? Now you have to be careful. If you have an infection going on, let's say you have a cold or urinary tract infection, your C-reactive protein is going to be high. But then once that infection has gone, it will come back down. Okay. So you may have to get it retested if that's the case. But if your C-reactive protein is a, is a little bit high, you want to start to think, why might that be the case? You want to look for underlying infections in the body. A place we always look is we look in the mouth. You know, we know that gingivitis, right, gum inflammation or infections in the teeth or in the mouth are often a cause of inflammation in the body that goes unchecked. So, you know, go visit your dentist. Make sure your gums are being well taken care of. Make sure there's no signs of gingivitis, Um you know, I also will say, you know, sometimes people have a borderline elevated C-reactive protein or it's, you know, uh, higher than it should be. And I say, well, let's look for signs of insulin resistance, right? So we were talking about insulin resistance earlier today. What tests can you do to figure out if you have it? You can get a fasting insulin done. You want that. We like it to be around five, but, you know, at least below 12, that's for sure, but five is even better. You can get a fasting blood sugar done. You want that to be at least under 100. And if those are high, that could be signs that insulin resistance is causing this increase in inflammation. You can check your waist to hip ratio because if your waist to hip ratio is elevated, that means you're holding on to too much weight around your belly. You're holding on to too much weight around your midsection. And that belly fat, that visceral fat, is a major cause of inflammation. So if you're trying to figure out where is my high C-reactive protein coming from or where is my inflammation coming from in my body, get out the tape measure and check your waist circumference. And for women, you want your waist circumference to be at least below 35 inches. And if you do the waist to hip ratio uh, below 0.8, 
And for men, you want that waist circumference to be below 40 inches or that waist to hip ratio below 0.9. And so that's a great way that you can, you can assess, maybe I'm holding on to too much weight around my belly because that, remember that belly fat, that visceral fat is a major cause of inflammation. Those are great tips. And I think the, your recommendation is that there's still certain tests that you can get your doctor to do. And if it's really high, if it's moderately high, here's some great tips. And then your doctor may have some tips for you. If it's very high and your doctor doesn't know what it is, that also might be a good indication to find a functional medicine doctor to dig in a little bit deeper and figure out what's going on. So true. So let's talk about other uh, things that are tests that could potentially help people uh, measure inflammation. Um, can you talk about like the gut and how you might look at uh, gut health and uh, see how that could be contributing to overall inflammation in the body? Yeah. So you know how we were talking about, you know, we, we often find underlying infections or imbalances in the mouth. Well, the same thing is true in the whole digestive system. So, you know, I will assess patients and say, okay, what's going on in your digestive system? We get a sense of how their digestive system is working, if they get a lot of bloating after they eat, if they have issues with bowel movements, diarrhea, constipation, um, heartburn. And, and, if, and then if needed, we may investigate a little further and say, okay, let's measure some of the, the, the microbiome. Let's look for signs of an overgrowth of a bacteria that shouldn't be there or an overgrowth of yeast, or maybe there's signs you just don't have enough of the good bacteria. So there are some, there are some tests that we can sometimes do that can look at imbalances in the gut flora, and, and many times that can be a source of inflammation in the body. So nutrition is such an important part of all this, and I think that you have a new, unique perspective because, uh, of course, a lot of functional medicine doctors get more education in nutrition, but you all actually have a background in nutrition. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about nutrition and, and kids' health. One of the episodes in the Broken Brain series focused on autism and ADHD, which are all just growing exponentially. And uh, you see a lot of families and young children who uh, have these uh, diagnoses. Can you tell us how you approach treating these conditions and kids that are on this spectrum and the role that nutrition and other things play when it comes to these diagnoses? Yeah. So, you know, I, I love nutrition. My undergraduate and graduate degree was in nutrition and I love using food as medicine and, and we can, we can often, um, do that. And in fact, I think with every patient I see, the first place I start is with their nutrition. I work to assess what they're eating, you know, what imbalances that they may have in their diet, are they deficient in certain nutrients when I assess their diet and look at what they're eating? You know, many times patients may come in to see us and we looked, we noticed that they're, uh, you know, missing a lot of those essential fatty acids, those omega-3 fats, because they don't like fatty fish or they're not eating ground flaxseed or they may be really not eating a lot of animal protein and may be low in B12, right? So we definitely assess, assess diet and figure out what deficiencies may be going on. And then with autism and ADHD, we do always start with diet too. And I think that's really critical. You know, we, we look at the patient's diet and say, okay, what do we need to, what do we need to do here? And, and, and some patients come to see us and we really need to start from scratch, right? We need to get them on a good 
basic healthy diet. So if, if a child is getting in a lot of food coloring uh, or, or foods that have a lot of additives in it, that's the first thing we remove because we know that uh, when kids are eating a lot of foods that have food coloring and additives in it, that that can actually cause problems with attention and focus. And so that's one of the first things we make sure we that's not um, happening. We make sure that they're eating eating a whole foods diet, that there's a balance in healthy protein, healthy fat, and carbohydrates at every meal, a diet that's really rich in fiber, and try to get more of those phytonutrients in it in the diet. Like those are the the components from our plant foods that have such amazing impact on our health and decreasing risk of disease. So we start with the basics. And then depending on what's going on with the child, you know, we, we might delve deeper. And with um, both actually with autism and ADHD, sometimes we'll do a, a, an elimination of a food that we suspect may be a problem. And it's, it's very interesting, but dairy and gluten are some of the top two foods, you know, that we will often remove or eliminate. Um, there's multiple reasons for why that's the case. Uh, there's components in gluten and dairy that for some children and adults, for that matter, can cause problems with attention and focus and um, mood and energy. So many times we'll remove both or one or both of those foods for that reason. And there's some other reasons that uh, gluten and dairy may have an impact on autism as well. And so is 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 often some place we'll start. For some kids, it's it's dramatic. We see dramatic improvements just by changing the diet. And then for other kids, we need to delve a little deeper and explore things like toxins and imbalances in the microbiome and digestive system and look at how they're detoxifying and, and may need to support that with additional supplements or even more aggressive treatments. So, so, so it's a really a, a tiered approach depending on um, that individual's health and and how deep we need to go. Yeah, it's kind of going back to that first central theme that we brought in, which is that even though we call it one thing, autism could be so many different things. Of course, people are already familiar with the autism spectrum, that it, people can be on the spectrum in different ways. There's people that are high-functioning, there are people that are not high-functioning, but even deeper than that is that the factors that could lead to symptoms that we diagnose as autism are multifactorial. So it's all about personalizing that treatment for uh, that patient. Absolutely. So um, I want to talk a little bit about your story here. Uh, you know, you had a life-changing health challenge. Um, can you share a little about what that experience was and how it impacted you and led to a little bit about your approach uh, today? Yeah, I can. So when I was 30, so about almost 19 years ago now, um, I was diagnosed with an aggressive form of breast cancer, a triple negative breast cancer. And like, like many people in that situation, it sort of came out of the blue. I had no family history. I didn't think I had any risk factors. And it was a shock. And I was young. And I was 30. So I was was like, kind of blown away. And it shifted so many things in my life. And I, I, you know, I was just actually rereading one of my favorite books that I read at the time, Return to Wholeness. And I was rereading it because I'm giving a lecture and I wanted to sort of tie it into that. But it, it was, it talks about how illness really is a, is a time for us to really figure out 
how our life needs to change and shift. And, you know, sometimes it kind of hits us over the head and says, okay, you need to do things differently. And, um, it, it, it did that for me, you know, cause I was like, okay, now I've got this life threatening illness at a young age. And I thought I was healthy because I was all into prevention and eating healthy and exercising. And then this happened. And so I had to really step back and say, well, well, why? And it, it helped me recognize that I, I needed to deal with stress differently. I needed to, um, manage the way that I reacted in the world and, and handled stress. And that became something I had to really focus on. And then it also led me down this path of functional medicine where I learned, okay, there was a lot more going on in my body that wasn't working optimally. I, I recognized that I had issues with, with how well I was detoxifying. I had some toxin exposures and, um, um, that I needed to work on and work on, on my own detoxification. I had lots of issues within my digestive system and we're recognizing how imbalances in the gut flora impact. We were talking about brain health. Well, they, they impact breast health too. And so that's an area I really had to, had to work on because as a child, I had way too many antibiotics. So, um, so I really started to, to look at my imbalances and how I really needed to rebalance uh, the systems in my body and what I needed to focus on. And I think the thing that, that helped me, one of the things that helped me the most was, was my gratitude journal. And, um, I started at that time when I was, when I was going through treatment, I started a gratitude journal. And I, I think, cause I was watching Oprah at the time and I, she did an episode on the gratitude journal and I said, okay, maybe I should start to do this. And, um, Gotta listen and, to Oprah. <laughs> gotta. And I gotta tell you, it was the hardest thing to do. I'm like, gratitude journal. I'm 30 years old with cancer, but you know, and people are telling me you might never have children and you gotta go through chemo. And yeah, you know, I was like, I wasn't feeling very grateful. So it was not easy at first. Um, I was feeling pretty bad for myself. So I, but I, but I started to do it. And um, at the beginning, you know, you say, write down three things that you're grateful for. And I'd be like, the sun, food, you know, it was like hard. It was really hard at first. But over time, it got easier. And um, it was something that really started to shift my brain and the way that my the way I, I interacted with the world and the way I thought about things. And it, it really changed, changed me profoundly. You know, it, it helped it helped uh, the fear start to go away. You know, it it helped me uh, feel happy again Um you know, it, it really helped me take this really hard time and, and make it a time of growth and development and, and learning. And, um, and so I'm, I'm really grateful for my gratitude journal, which every once in a while I'll go back to and, and read again. And I still, I still, you know, will go back and write, you know, do the gratitude journal these days, but it actually comes just so much easier for me now because I went through that process and I, notice that naturally I think of things to be grateful for every minute of every day often. And so it's something that changed, changed my brain profoundly. It's so important that gratitude and creating contrast for everything that's there, because I think as, you know, being in this community, in this space, I've just heard so many people, including yourself say, you could be eating the perfect diet. You could be taking all the supplements, but your body's most powerful ability is it's mental and emotional health. And if your mental and emotional health is not on point, you can really force yourself into being sick. Absolutely. And you know, my friend Heidi Spear, who I did my breast wellness DVD with, you know, she always says, 
And and every time she says it, I'm like, yeah, she always says the brain, the mind is not always right. You know, and she'll say the mind is not always right. And I'd be like, oh, wow, that's really true. Like, you know, your, your mind can think all sorts of things. And a lot of times it's, it's wrong. (laughs) It's, it's taking you down this unhealthy pathway and learning how to calm down the mind and not always listen to it because it may be coming up with some crazy thoughts, I think is a really important tool. That's great. I want to close off with the, you know, top three tips for brain health, bringing this back to brain health and all the components that we were chatting about. If there was three simple things that you could give to people, simple or not, but it's up to you, uh, that can have an impact on their brain function uh, what would those three things be? Uh, so three things. Um, well, I have to start with the exercise or move, right? So we've got to move or extra, do some movement or exercise every day. Um, that'd be my number one. Number two uh, would be to give yourself time to rest, um, getting in those the sleep, you know, giving yourself those, those hours, the seven to nine hours to get rest and sleep would be number two. And, um, number three would be, um, increasing the amount of phytonutrients in your diet. So, uh, the phytonutrients come from all your colorful fruits and vegetables and spices. And so getting more of these phytonutrients in your diet by getting more vegetables in your diet, getting more spices, eating from every color of the rainbow every day. Those would be my top three. Those are three great ones. Thank you so much, Dr. Baum. Uh, if people want to find out more about you and your breast wellness DVD, which I love and I've recommended to so many people, uh, where can they find you um, online? Yeah, thanks, Drew. Um, my website is drboham.com, and you can find uh, a lot of information about me and my DVD there. And also at the Ultra Wellness Center, so ultrawellnesscenter.com. Uh, when you go to the team, you'll find a, a lot of information there as well. On Facebook, I'm Elizabeth Boham, MD. And on Twitter, I'm at Dr. Boham. That's me. Dr. Boham, thank you for joining us on the podcast. And a personal thank you for me for uh, really supporting my mom to be in the best health that she's ever been in in her entire life. Not only is she cancer-free, but she's also just feeling so grateful and back in her body. I think, you know, my mom has opened up and shared that that connection between her body was lost at some point in time. And she has it back now where she really feels it and she feels the joy from eating, from movement, from gratitude, from all the other experiments and little tips and tricks that you shared with her. So I just want to say thank you for uh, looking after my mom. Oh, thank you so much, Drew. It's great being with you today. Thank you. Hey everyone, I just want to mention that we have a very special offer for all our Broken Brain Podcast listeners. You can get 30% off of Dr. Bohm's Breast Wellness DVD. All you need to do is go to drbohm.com, that's D-R-B-O-H-A-M.com, and click on Breast Wellness DVD banner or the order button, and enter the code BREAST30WELLNESS. Again, that's BREAST30WELLNESS in the coupon code box during checkout. If you can't remember that, check out the show notes and it'll be inside of there too. Enjoy.